0: And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our next reading is from the book of Luke, and will be in Luke chapter 9. Um, Which is on page one thousand and forty-four in your church Bible, if you've got one. So we'll read Luke nine, starting at verse eighteen. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and referring to Jesus, Um, and he asked them, "Who do the crowds say that I am?" And they answered, "John the Baptist." But others say, Elijah. And others, the one the prophets of old has risen. One of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all... and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him Moses and Elijah
1: Hello, am I on again? Hey, is the um, mic not feedbacking this time? Yeah, so that's my fault. I I don't think I screwed it in properly. So there you go. Uh, It is lovely to be with you all this morning. Can can I pray for us? We kick in. Our our Father, we thank you so much for the chance to gather. Lord, this is a a wonderful privilege that because the lord jesus died and he rose again we can gather as your people this morning we pray that our ears our eyes our hearts might be open to see who you are and to be changed by you lord help us to see the glory of the lord jesus this morning amen all right well up on the screen a few pictures. Does anyone here like disaster movies? Now's the time to confess it. Couple. Anyone? You got to be bold. I count four hands, five hands. That's excellent. I I like them. <laughs> so I'm with you, you know, I, I wasn't trying to out you and then and then say I hate them. <laughs> I I love disaster movies, right? I found this out about myself a couple of years ago when I, I realized. Oh, thanks, brother. <laughs> Don't want to wreck the beautiful carpet here, you know. <laughs> I, I, I realised that when I was on holidays, and I was reaching for something to watch, I, I would watch a disaster movie, you know. And, and that's when you know that you like them, because there's nothing... You, you can do whatever you like, and, and you, you pick it. Anyway, I, I reckon I've worked out the genre of the disaster movie. You, they all have a really bad script. <laughs> yeah. That's step if you wanted to make one, that's step one. You've got to write badly and put all the corny references you can in. But here's the other thing. If, if you want to write a disaster movie, you take an actor who used to be good, you know, and, and they're now in the twilight of their career. They're kind of middle-aged. And if you think about a disaster movie, that's about every single one, isn't it? Anyway, you've got your actor, and he's playing a divorced father isn't he? And the whole plot is that there is some disaster happening that brings this divorced father back to his ex-wife and his kids, and they save the world. Or they end up in a little bunker in Antarctica or something, and they're, and they're fine. Now, here's the thing. There is a moment, I think, in every disaster movie that is worth watching, but the trouble is you don't want to watch the whole thing to get there. So let me, let me spoil the moment. The moment is... The moment when they realize the truth, that the comet's coming, that the volcano is exploding, the moment when they realize something big is going to happen and we can't stay where we are. We need to move. Because this truth is so big that everything changes. My favorite disaster movie is called Dante's Peak. Has anyone seen Dante's Peak? Yeah, two people, three people, four people are just shy. That's all right. You know, Dante's Peak is an 80s film about a volcano and a, town, a little sleepy town of Dante's Peak. The, the volcanologist, Harry Dalton, is on this routine checkup. He goes in, does the test on the volcano, and, and realizes actually this thing's going to blow. And so the moment comes when he's calling his boss And he says this, your volcano might just be waking up. Beautiful script. His boss says, you're talking about the evacuation of 7,400 people. Don't you think that's a little extreme? There is this profound human moment where they realize that the truth has to change everything. That if that's true, if a volcano is about to blow... They have to get out. Something has to happen. They cannot stay where they are. And I want to suggest this morning, that is the moment I want us to have. The disaster movie moment, that if what Jesus claims is true, you cannot stay where you are. It is too big. His claims are too big. And they mean you have to respond in some way. And the way we're going to do that is I want to ask three questions. And as we do that, we will see the claims of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what does it mean to follow him? That's where we're heading. We're in that passage in Luke, chapter 9. But first, who is Jesus? Have a look at verse 18 in our passage. Verse 18, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. See, Jesus is just speaking with his disciples. And as he does that, he asks them this question, who do the crowd say that I am? You notice how self centered that question is it's very much about jesus isn't it who do the crowd say that i am be a weird question you know andy asked me earlier who are you and i don't think many of you were leaning back on your seats going what's he gonna say (laughs) it doesn't really matter does it It doesn't really matter who i am but jesus it's very appropriate for jesus to ask the question who do the crowd say that i am because it is the question that matters who is jesus at this point in Luke, and we've seen it through Luke as we've looked in the earlier chapters of the gospel, that Jesus has done extraordinary things, hasn't he? He has healed a paralyzed man, and he got up with no physio, no rehab, and walked. It's an extraordinary miracle. Before this passage, he has raised a dead girl to life, fed 5,000 people with just a couple loaves of bread and some fish. And the crowds noticed. Everyone who was there when Jesus was around on this earth knew that he was someone significant. And so their answers, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, they might not be our answers. But here's what they suggest that the crowds noticed that Jesus was someone from God, someone significant. See, no one dismissed Jesus as just a mere man no one did that but they didn't know what to make of him is he one of the prophets is he Elijah I don't know and I don't think a lot's changed you walk down the streets of botany I wonder if you do that you know I've never done that actually but I imagine it's a nice suburb here you walk around and you ask people who do you think Jesus is I doubt that you'll hear anyone who says he was no one important He was someone. But do you notice how much time Jesus gives to that question? See, he asks the disciples the question, who do the crowd say I am? And then he ignores their answer. Do you notice that? just completely ignores the answer and asks the question actually that really matters. What about you? He said, verse 20, who do you say I am? Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, this is personal not about them, it's about you. Who do you say he is? I want to suggest this morning, you might have a whole bunch of ideas about Jesus swirling around in your head from what other people have said. And it's very easy to just fall back on it, isn't it? On what other people have said. But Jesus actually wants you to take it a step further. Not what do they say, but what do you say? I wonder this morning... I take it as an opportunity to investigate that question again. Who do you think Jesus is? Look at Peter's answer. Peter says, The Christ of God. Now, that is a massive answer. That's an extraordinary answer. This is a profound moment in the Bible. The disciples have been with Jesus for a while now, and they have seen that this is not just a mere prophet. He has done things that no one can do, no one else can do, extraordinary things. And Peter has come to the conclusion, who is this that raises the dead, that calms the seas, that heals the sick? This is the Christ. This is the Christ of God. Now, that is an astonishing claim, but I take it we need to do a a little bit of work in the Old Testament to see just how big that claim is. Come back with me to Psalm 2. We read it before. And if anyone finds a page number, feel free to help your neighbour. Psalm 2, I'd love you to turn there. As you're flipping, let me, let me tell you a few things about the Old Testament promise. See, in the Old Testament, there was a promise of one who would come called the Anointed One. Now, the reason that's significant is because when they would crown a king... They would anoint them with oil. And so, there became this one who was promised who would be the king of kings, the great king, the anointed one. Or, in Greek, the Christ. The Christ of God. And Psalm 2 is one of those passages. Have a look at verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers, uh, and the rulers take counsel together against two, Against the Lord and against his anointed one, against his Christ. Now, what will this Christ be like? Psalm 2, verse 7. I tell you the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. This is the Son of God. Further down, verse ten, verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Verse 8 Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Do you see the claim going on in this psalm? This one who would come is the ruler of the entire world, who will rule with a rod of iron. This is the Christ, the one who would come, and every king would bow before this one. The Lord. And then Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ. What a moment for Peter to say, this is the one we've been longing for, the Christ, the one who would come and rescue God's people. Peter looks at Jesus and says, you are the Christ. That is Jesus' identity, the Christ, the King of God. But actually, our passage goes further. See, that's the identity of Jesus confessed by Peter, but then we see it revealed have a look at verse 28 come back to luke actually that'll help you <laughs> luke 9 verse 28 now about eight days after these sayings he took with him peter and john and james and went up to the mountain to pray and as he was praying the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white Extraordinary picture, isn't it? The appearance of his face was altered. Literally, it was, it was other. It's like the, the New Testament writers are kind of going, this was massive, and I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> his clothes were like lightning. The brightest thing they could imagine. Matthew, in his account, says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. See, here we get a glimpse of who Jesus really is. It's like the veil is peeled back, and what's behind the veil is glory. The glory of the Christ. Moses and Elijah are with him. If you know your Old Testament, you'll know that Moses, the great lawgiver, the great one who rescued by God's hand the people of Israel out of Egypt. And Elijah, the great prophet, are both there with Jesus. The culmination of the law and the prophets is this one, Jesus, in the middle. What's going on? Have you ever wondered that in the transfiguration? What is going on here? Have a look at verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. They saw his glory. See, Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament, one other significant thing about both of them is that they saw the glory of Yahweh, of the Lord, on a mountain. And here again, they see the glory of God in the Son, in the Lord Jesus. Notice it's not... The glory of another that's reflected. See, so remember when Moses went up to the mountain, he came down and his face shone so that he had to go in a tent and kind of hide himself from the Israelites. That's not what's going on here. This is a greater glory. This is the glory of Jesus himself. And the voice thunders from heaven, this is my son. I want to suggest that this is the thing that changes everything that Jesus is the Lord, the Christ of God. He is actually God himself come as a man and he stands on the mountain and we see him in his glory. If that's true, that changes everything, doesn't it? There is a Lord, Jesus. He is the one before whom every knee will bow. He is the Christ remember a couple of years ago, my wife Paige and I, we were reading the Bible with a girl. And she wanted to read the Bible with us, but the, and, and she really loved, was, she found Jesus compelling, right? But she just didn't like the Bible. She hated the Bible, actually. And then she said, could I read the Bible with you? <laughs> now, that's a funny assignment, isn't it? You kind of go, how am I going to read the Bible with someone who doesn't like it? And I remember the first time we we caught up, we were in a cafe, and we were sitting out near the water, actually, and and the glitter from the Mardi Gras was still on her face from the night before. And I just thought, man, (laughs) what am I going to do? And we we opened the Bible, actually, to, to Mark's account of this same passage. And we just started reading. And as we started reading, we read for weeks and weeks, and months, actually, As we started reading, something changed. She moved from finding Jesus compelling to finding him kind of irritating and frustrating. I remember she said that he asked too much of her. Jesus asked too much. But then as we kept reading, she became persuaded that it was true. And she gave her life to him. And actually, Paige and I had dinner with her and her husband last night. It was a wonderful time. And she is following the Lord Jesus, and it is a beautiful thing to watch. I remember asking her, what what happened? What happened? And she said this, "I, I kept coming back to the Bible, and I was convinced that what Jesus was saying was true. At first, I understood it in my head, and then the beauty of Jesus captured my heart. Do you see what happens? When you get who Jesus is, it changes everything. Because if he is who he says he is, then he demands our entire life. This is the one before whom every knee will bow. But why did he come? When you get the answer to that question, it is staggering. Have a look at verse 22. See, Peter had just confessed the massive truth. This is the Christ of God. Verse 22, then Jesus says, The Son of Man, that's him, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Why did he come? Why did the Christ of God come into our world, Jesus says, to die? Isn't that astonishing? I wonder whether we've heard this too much and we just think that's normal (laughs) the Christ of God came to suffer and to die what a shocking truth but take a closer look at the transfiguration with me see this is the moment whatever we do with the transfiguration I think we can all agree this is the moment where Jesus is most visible in his glory until his resurrection it's an extraordinary account blinding splendor what's the purpose Well, I want to ask a different question. Why is Jesus there? What's Jesus doing on the mountain? Because we actually get an answer to that question. Have a look at verse 30. Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. They're actually having a conversation on the mountain. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, what are they talking about? Verse 31. Verse 30, sorry, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory spoke with Jesus about his departure, which he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. They're speaking about his death and his resurrection and his ascension to the Father. Isn't that extraordinary? The moment that Jesus is revealed in his glory, as he speaks with Moses and Elijah, this is not triumphal, this is him preparing for his death. Because the Son of God, the Christ, came to die. Why? Why did the Christ come into our world to die? Well, there's a clue as God speaks from the heavens, in the cloud. Have a look at his words. This is my Son whom I have chosen. Now, there's a couple things going on there. As God speaks those words, what he's doing is he's drawing together words he's already spoken in the Old Testament. Old words. The first is from Psalm 2. You pick it up there. This is my son. This is the Christ. But the second is Isaiah 42. It should be up on the screen. Have a look at Isaiah 42, verse 1. Here is my servant... Whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. Now Isaiah 42 was one of the servant songs in the Old Testament. See, this figure in the Old Testament that the Jews didn't quite know what to make of this one who would come, who would suffer and die for Israel, for their sin. One of the most famous of these servant songs is Isaiah 53. Let me read bits for you. Verse 3 of Isaiah 53. He was despised, this servant, and rejected by mankind. A man of sorrows. Verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Verse 6. The Lord has laid on this one the iniquity, the sin of us all. Do you see what God's doing? He's drawing together the Christ and this suffering servant who would die for the people. It is Jesus, the Christ who came to die. Because that is why Jesus came. He came to deal with our sin. The great need for the Israelites and for us was not military domination like Psalm 2 suggested. They were longing for the Romans to be kicked out at this point They'd been under Roman rule for a long time. Before that, it was the Greeks. Before that, it was the Persians and then the Assyrians. And the Israelites treasured this promise of the Christ who would come to save them. And yet, what they didn't understand is that that was not their greatest problem. And it's not our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is our hearts that we have turned to the God who made us and said, get stuffed. That's what the Bible calls sin. That each of us live in his world, and yet we ignore him. And when you do that to God, that is a massive problem, isn't it? That we have told the Lord of the universe, I don't want anything to do with you. And so the Bible says that God... Let us do life our own way. That we have been cut off from the source of life because we've rejected God. And that the punishment for our sin is death and judgment. I take it we need to feel this, don't we? That that is our plight before God unless someone intervenes. And yet someone did intervene. This is why Jesus came to die in your place see the one who the prophets spoke of is this one and as he died on the cross the extraordinary thing is he took our sin all of it on himself everything you've ever done past present future jesus took it on himself in your place the christ did that for you so that if you trust in him there is complete total forgiveness Isn't that an extraordinary message forgiveness from everything we've ever done that is why jesus came to die the picture up on the screen of of a man called bill deacon Has anyone ever heard of bill deacon see more people should because he was an extraordinary man he in 1997 he was a helicopter rescue guy i don't know what the actual title is he was in helicopters rescued people you know and and there was this ship called the green lily that was about to go under the rocks somewhere north of england and there was 11 people on board they couldn't get there with the lifeboats and time was running out and so bill deacon and his crew came and he dropped down with a winch and rescued all 11 men But here's the thing, time was running out, and as the last couple were there, he realized that, actually, we've got to rescue them all, and we are running completely out of time. So he untied himself, and he attached it to the last men, and they were lifted to safety. And the account is harrowing of what happened as they watched from the helicopter as Bill Deacon was swept over the boat and into the rocks, and he died. Now, that is a harrowing account, isn't it? And I take it it moves us partly because it gives us a glimpse of the one who is the greater rescuer. The one who came from heaven, the Lord Jesus, died for us. He was swept into the judgment of the Lord God in your place so that you can be saved. So here's the thing. As we look at the transfiguration. I reckon we think, wow, that's pretty cool. Glory. But isn't it more amazing that that one would veil his glory, appear as an ordinary man, a man of sorrows, and go to his death for you? That the Lord would do that. Do you see him as he is? He is the one whose face shone and yet then he was crowned with thorns as he died. He is the one whose clothes were like lightning as he was revealed in his glory and then the soldiers divided his clothes as he died on the cross. This is the one who stood between Moses and Elijah and on that day he was hung between two criminals. This is the one who is the light of the world, who, as the voice cried out from heaven, this is my son, on that cross, he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is our Lord, is it not? The great one, the Christ who came and died for us. Which brings us to our last question who will you live for? Have a look at verse 23. Then Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory. And in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I don't know what that passage does for you, but that is a big passage, isn't it? Verse 26 Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, Jesus says, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory. This is eternity at stake. Heaven and hell, Jesus says, there are two options you live for him or you live for yourself, heaven or hell. See, the day is coming when the Lord Jesus will come back. He really is the Christ from Psalm 2. See the end of Psalm 2 that he is the judge of the world? Psalm 2 will be fulfilled. Jesus is coming back, and on that day, all of us will stand before him and we'll have to give an account of the life we've lived. I take it this is the disaster movie moment. That given who Jesus is, that truth should change everything. Everything. Jesus the Lord is coming back. Who will you live for? Jesus says if you live for yourself, if you save your life now, well then you will lose it for eternity. But then he says if you lose your life for him, And I don't think he means if you become a martyr, what he means is if you give up your life, give it over to Jesus, you will save it for eternity. He says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Do you see, in the final analysis, is your soul for eternity a price that you're willing to pay for a couple of short years now, doing what you want to do, But you see the hope of verse 24? Whoever loses their life for me will save it for eternity. Which means we should really work out what that looks like, shouldn't we? <laughs> what does it mean to live for Jesus? Have a look at verse 23. Jesus spells it out for us. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Now let me, let me step us through this, because they are strong words, aren't they? Whoever wants to be my disciple, my follower, must deny themselves that I no longer live for myself, but for Jesus. Take up their cross. That is a strong image, isn't it? You know, in the Roman world, and the disciples would have known this, they would have seen people take up their cross. And you know what happens? You don't see them again. Because that is the road to death. And Jesus says, so too for us, if we would follow him, to totally deny ourselves, to die to ourselves and to follow him instead. Daily, he says, and to follow the Lord Jesus. In other words, Jesus is saying, will you live for him, not for yourself? That's at the heart of what he says. I want to suggest just for a moment, if you're here this morning and you haven't yet decided what to do with Jesus, Andy's going to talk about the Life Series a bit later, but I, I, I really want to plead with you, that is something worth your time. If this is true, it changes everything. But I want to speak to a th- if, if you've been a follower of Jesus for maybe a week, a year, a couple of years, or more years than you can remember, and you're here this morning, what, what do we do with this? Well, I want to suggest that our world sells a completely different message to what Jesus says. Probably ever since, well, at least ever since I was born, I, <laughs> the world has said, do what you want to do. Live for yourself. Do what makes you happy. I want to suggest that is something we hear every day a thousand times. A thousand times. And it is so easy to drift with that tide to do what I want to do, to live for myself. You know, I was reading an article yesterday. Here's a lady called Eileen Sue. She says this. And, you know, all I did is I typed in living for yourself, right, on Google. (laughs) Went to news, first article. She says this. And, And she's advocating living for yourself as a bit of therapy. Living for yourself means living the life that you want for yourself, regardless of the opinions of others. What you want for yourself doesn't matter what other people think. Understand, she said, that your life is in your hands. And if you give away that power to anyone else, you're taking away from your own. you see what she's saying? How do you live? Live for yourself. How do you know what that looks like? What what makes you happy? That is what our world tells us, isn't it? And I want to suggest it is painful, isn't it? As we come to the words of Jesus, we hear it, and it is completely the opposite of what our world says. Our world says, live for you. Jesus says, don't. Live for me. Don't live for yourself. Against that tide, we need to fight harder and harder because our world will fight harder and harder for you to live for yourself. It is becoming harder to be a Christian in Australia, I think. Partly because to be a Christian now doesn't automatically mean your life will be good because some people don't like that. And we need to be prepared, I take it, to live in a world that doesn't like that we're followers of Jesus. Now, how do you do that? Well, at the heart of it, I think we need to remember who our Lord is. It is the Christ. We follow the Lord Jesus. And at the heart of living for him is very simple, to live and bow the knee before him in all of our life, fully. Very simple, very hard to do, isn't it? See what Jesus is asking for? Total obedience to him. How are you going with that? (laughs) It's hard, isn't it? You know, one of the words I've reflected on in this passage is the word daily. Because every day I think I fail to do what Jesus says here. And yet every day then I have to take up my cross and decide, no, today's the day I'm going to continue to live for Jesus. So here's the thing. We will fail every day, actually probably hourly, we will fail to live for Jesus as we should. But that's where we need to come back to his cross. And remember that as we fail And as we keep stumbling forward to live for Jesus, there is grace at the cross because he has forgiven us. It's not based on how well you carry your cross. It's based on how well you trust his, which is even if it's a little bit, if it's in Jesus, he says he has forgiven us for everything. So can I encourage us this morning, keep going. Keep following the Lord Jesus and keep seeking to live for your whole life for him. because as you do that I take it it's one of the most radical things we can do today is to live not for ourselves but for him your family your friends the world will take notice and that changes things people will start to go what are you doing (laughs) who do you live for keep following him I want to finish with a beautiful promise because this is not our life forever this is our life for this life and Jesus urges us to follow him until he takes us home. And he will. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. It should be up on the screen. Here's a beautiful little promise. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. not that a wonderful promise? there will come a day when we will be with our Saviour and we will be like him let me pray our Lord God we, we come before you knowing that we fail every day in the task of following the Lord Jesus and yet we know that given who he is there is nothing else that's appropriate to do but to live for him And so we pray that you would give us, by your Spirit, that you would change us. Give us the strength to continue to follow the Lord Jesus all of our days. And Lord, we long for that day when we will see him face to face. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.